pray. Father, we thank you so much for this night. We thank you for the chance to gather together and to celebrate the joy of knowing you. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful book, The Great Divorce, and for the things that we can learn from it that will encourage faith. Lord, we pray that as we come in the midst of this busy season with so many things on our minds and on our schedules, that you would help us to put those things aside and to open our hearts through your Holy Spirit to hear what you might desire for us to learn this evening. Lord, we pray that you would speak through your word and that you would speak through Lewis's fiction and that you would draw us further up and further in into the things of your kingdom. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we have a little musical selection. Uh, this is so easy. We've had several weeks of being stumped, so I decided to, uh, as it were, put the music on a curve uh, to make it a little easier. So we'll see whether anyone gets this. Extra credit, who wrote the words? Yes, Christina Rossetti. Who wrote the music? Yep, that's a very good guess. One of his good friends. All right, well, you're just going to be in suspense because I'm going to tell you later. <laughs> There's a reason I played that that we'll get to you later, but you'll have to see uh, what that is toward the end of class. So let's say our verse together. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. So, uh, a couple of words of welcome to those of you who are here in person and also to those who are joining us on the live stream and the podcast. We continue to have new people every week, uh, so we're delighted to have you. If you are new, uh, three ways to approach this class. You can be on the beach, which will be great for you for the next couple of weeks because we're not doing absolutely nothing. Uh, but when you're on the beach, you're just sort of coming when you can and getting what you can out of it, and that's great. I'm delighted to have you. Or you can snorkel, you can go deep on the things that look interesting to you and stay on the surface, on the rest. Or you can go be a scuba diver where you go deep, you read all the handouts, you listen to the music, you meditate and contemplate the words of the music, uh, all of those kinds of things. But whatever level you're at, I'm delighted to have you. Uh, and if you are a remote student, and you're not on our email list, please do Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and send me an email so I can get you added um, to that email list. So uh, you are getting used, if you've been here, to hearing the mere Anglicanism announcement, but this is the last one because we are within 100 seats of selling out. So uh, if you know anyone that might want to come to this, uh, this is the time. Uh, and I expect those 100 seats are going to go pretty fast because um, some of you are familiar with the Pints with Jack podcast. If you're not, I would encourage you to become familiar with it. Uh, it's probably the top C.S. Lewis podcast that's out there. Uh, but they did an interview with me this week where they are plugging the conference. Um, and so once that goes live, those 100 seats are probably going to be history. So um, we are super excited for this conference, 
and uh, it is going to be a great blessing. Even if you can't go, uh, it will be recorded, so uh, at some point later you'll be able to hear the presentations. Um, also, if you're somebody who's local, we will have various volunteer opportunities uh, that you'll be hearing more about. So, uh, tonight's music we're going to talk more about later. In the Bleak Midwinter is a wonderful uh, Christmas carol, but there's some very interesting things about it. So, again, just a refresher on why we're studying this book that was written 80 years ago. What does it have to do with anything today? And part of the reason this book is so important is because of its emphasis on eternal life. We live in a culture that denies that life is eternal, that says this life is all there is. But last week, if you were here, you heard just the glorious beauty of heaven. And it is so important for us to understand what God has prepared for us, even though we cannot get our heads completely around it, to know what we have to look forward to uh, is so very important. Secondly, narcissism and pride are everywhere in our culture today, and Lewis shows us in this chapter, and we're going to see um, in this chapter tonight particularly, where that gets you. Truth is an absolute, is under cultural attack, and the idea of speaking your own truth is held up as the highest good, and Lewis again shows what happens when you take that point of view, and it does not end well. There also is an obsession in our culture about our rights. Uh, I was thinking about this just the other day uh, when I was in a place where two drive-through lines had to merge. And um, you can see that everybody thinks they deserve to be first. Yes, so be careful out there. Um, and then also this whole idea of clarity about either or, that our world does have some things in it that are gray, but there are a lot of choices that are black and white choices. They are either or. They, if you take one road, the other road is forever closed to you. And we don't like that in our culture. We want to have all of it. But Lewis makes very clear that choices are significant and that they have consequences. And then perhaps most importantly, there is a brilliant rebuttal of the idea of works righteousness that we can somehow earn our way or be good enough or if we're just nice enough and say Merry Christmas to people instead of Happy Holidays that our virtue card gets checked and then we automatically go to heaven. Um, that is not how it works. So last week, and I, if you weren't here, uh, I would really commend to you, particularly if you're snorkeling or scuba diving, go back and listen to last week's class. Uh, Part of what I love about this book is some chapters are about characters. Other chapters are really more about heaven, the place where Lewis finds himself. And last week was really all about the glory of heaven. And it is, uh, I think, tremendously encouraging. So in that chapter, Lewis, uh, who's the narrator, is entranced by the beauty of his surroundings. He's drawn by the sound of this thundering live water that he can hear and comes to find that there's a spectacular waterfall that is impossibly large by human standards. Um, Lewis sees one of the ghosts, the guy that was on the bus that said he was going to go up to heaven because he wanted to get some solid commodities that he could bring back and try to create supply and demand and sell some things down in the great town and that might liven it up a little bit. So this guy is standing next to this spectacularly beautiful apple tree at the foot of the waterfall that is loaded with golden apples. So there's a lot of symbolism here about Eden and Greek mythology and other things going on. And so he's determined at first that he's going to take like lots of apples back with him. But then he discovers he can't even pick up a leaf. But after a while of screaming and straining and groaning, he manages to figure out how to kind of cantilever with his coat to be able to get one of the small apples to roll into his pocket. So just as he does that, he hears this enormous and terrifying voice yell out, fool, put it down. And he realizes that 
in addition to being a spectacular waterfall, that in some way this waterfall is also an angelic being that is beyond human comprehension. And so he's terrified uh, by that and runs off. And this voice speaks to the man and says, there's no room in hell even for the smallest apple. But then, even though this guy has transgressed, he invites him to stay, to learn to eat such apples, saying even the leaves and the blades of grass would delight to teach him. But he refuses and runs away in terror. So a couple of major themes in last week's chapter, the extraordinary beauty of every aspect of heaven that embraces all the earthly senses and surpasses them. Secondly, the dimensions and size of heaven are beyond earthly comprehension. That it's just so much more than we can ever begin to get our heads around in the most glorious way. Heaven also is the perfection of the original Garden of Eden, and it reflects not only Genesis, but Revelation as well. And one of the things that I would encourage you to do, if you've never done it before, is read the first three chapters of Genesis, and then go to Revelation and start around Revelation 20, and read 20, 21, and 22, and you will see this beautiful symmetry about the garden and the river and the fruit, all of which, by the way, is in the window over the altar in our church. Uh, another point that Lewis makes is that heaven is a type of solid reality that makes anything earthly seem a mere shadow by comparison. And we talked about how this idea of types and shadows is all through the Bible, starting um, in Genesis with things like Melchizedek, and then right up into the book of Hebrews, and all of the things that we learn about the earthly tabernacle and the temple and the priest um, being shadows of the real things, the things that are real with a capital R that are in heaven. And if you studied uh, Greek philosophy, you will also know that this is very similar to Plato's theory of forms. And Lewis would say that is not an accident, that this kind of truth is hardwired into the creation. And then fifth, the presence of Christ and his image permeate every aspect of heaven. And we talked about that verse from Revelation talking about the new heavens and the new earth and the heavenly Jerusalem that comes down at the end of the age where it says they need no light nor lamp nor sun for Christ will be their all. That throughout, and this is beyond our understanding, but somehow Christ's transcendence and eminence meet and are everywhere in heaven. And then we spent some time talking about Lewis and the waterfall image. Lewis loves the image of the waterfall. It shows up all over the place in his writing. Uh, it shows up in the abolition of man right at the very beginning. It shows up in the great divorce. It shows up in the last battle in the Chronicles of Narnia. And it doesn't just show up as a casual little mention. It shows up usually as an entire chapter. And part of the reason for that is that Lewis thought that waterfalls are one of the chief evidences of who God is because they are so spectacularly beautiful and they are the fullness of what living water means. Water that is pure and clean and sparkling and yet powerful and dramatic and all of these things all together. Uh, so he finds that the waterfall is a great symbol for the things of the kingdom of God. So chapter seven, we go from the beautiful and the sublime to the ridiculous. So in chapter seven, Lewis is feeling a little bit unnerved uh, by the presence of this giant angelic being that somehow is the uh, anthropomorphized waterfall. And it makes him nervous. So he wanders downstream, and when he does, he runs into another ghost and this ghost is a lean, hard-bitten man that Lewis says has kind of the air of reliability. 
And Lewis had seen him on the bus, but hadn't talked to him. And this ghost asks Lewis whether he's planning to go back to get the bus to go back to the gray town. And Lewis says he hasn't decided yet, but the hard-bitten ghost says that he is going back, that he's seen all there is to see. Now remember, this is this huge, vast country with vast mountain ranges that are off in the distance, this river and the waterfall that they're just at the foot of. They haven't even gone into the country yet. But he's seen all there is to see. He says it's all propaganda and that there was never any real chance of staying because you can't eat the fruit, you can't drink the water, and you can't even walk on the grass. And he says a human being couldn't live in such conditions. And then he goes on to say that he had traveled extensively on earth. Uh, and this was really extensive for somebody in the 1940s. He had been to Peking. He'd been to the Taj Mahal. He'd been all over everywhere. He had seen the wonders of the world. And he said they were all the same. They were all the same. And they were all just advertising stunts run by the same people. He said, even the gray town, hell, is the same way, that it's very disappointing and that there aren't any really interesting people. He said, you know, you imagine that there are people being roasted down there, or at least Henry VIII causing trouble, but there's nothing like that at all, that it's just boring. And then Lewis says that he prefers the heavenly country, and he says he thinks that if you stay there, you could get acclimatized to it, that you could learn. Remember the end of the last chapter saying even the leaves and the blades of grass would delight to teach you. But this man is not interested in hearing that. The ghost says it's the same old lie told all through life, that doing the right thing or being disciplined and persevering would lead to a better life. Not so, he says, they they, the same old ring, are running everything. And they could rescue people if they wanted to, but they would rather that everyone just be miserable. That there's a whole group of them that are out there, and they have all of the power, and they are determined, their whole goal in existing is to make every single person miserable. So the ghost says that these people, they, could rescue people like Lewis and this hard-bitten ghost, but that there wouldn't be any point to it even if they did because there's nothing actually to do in either place. There's nothing to do in heaven in this beautiful country, and there's nothing to do in hell either. And he says they have failed and their obligation, that word, obligation, to keep people from being bored. Hmm. Since all the parsons and moralists have got things upside down, the ghost says, they keep on asking people to alter themselves, when instead, and alter themselves, this is exactly what we were talking about with St. Augustine, rightly ordered loves. What, he's, what the ghost is saying is that People like Augustine are saying that if you get your loves in the right order and you start loving the right things first and secondary things second and third things third, then you will experience joy. But he's saying, no, 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 because that means you have to change, that you have to make decisions. You might have to give up things that you like doing. It's just like, I don't know how many of y'all have seen that old movie, Bruce Almighty. Um, there are several lines in there about the way people think God is supposed to be the cosmic wish fulfiller. And there's a great line at the cocktail party when this woman walks by and just has this tossaway line and she says, I just lost 90 pounds on the Krispy Kreme diet. That's, that's the kind of thing that this guy is saying. You ought to just be able to do whatever you want to and it should just work out. And so he says, they ought to adjust reality to suit their public. Lewis, thoroughly depressed by this point, 
says that he's going to stay anyway. So the ghost leaves him, saying it's going to rain soon, and that Lewis will then find that the rain, sorry, that's a misprint, pierces him like machine gun shots. So just think about Lewis's journey in this chapter. So he starts off, he's enthralled with the beauty of heaven and this waterfall and the angelic being, and he's kind of scared, but at the same time, filled with wonder and awe. And remember how he said he felt like his senses were beginning to expand to be able to comprehend some of the, the beauty that was around him. And then he comes in contact with this one guy, this one ghost, who is so negative about every single thing that by the end of this chapter, Lewis is in despair. So there's some points Lewis is making here. So a couple of major themes. First, pessimism becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And this is one of the lines. So the ghost has just said that he'd been to Peking, and so, um, or Pekin as they spell it in the book. And Lewis asks, well, what was Pekin like? Oh, nothing to it. Just one darn wall inside another. Just a trap for tourists. I've been pretty well everywhere. Niagara Falls, the pyramids, Salt Lake City, the Taj Mahal. What was it like? Not worth looking at. They're all advertisement stunts, all run by the same people. There's a combine, you know, a world combine that just takes an atlas and decides where they'll have a site. Now, I just want to say something here. It's really easy to look at this and say, that guy is such an idiot. Who would think going to these places there was not anything wonderful or marvelous? And why is he being so negative? I would never be like that. But I would like to suggest to you and to myself um, that we are surrounded by wonders and beauty and incredible things every day, and we can come home at the end of the day, and if someone lives with us and says, how was your day? We can say, terrible. I was cut off at the drive through That is a shallow view of what it means to be alive. So there are some things we can learn here. So here are some scriptures on this idea. So are the paths of all who forget God, and the hope of the godless will perish, whose confidence is fragile and whose trust is a spider's web. And then from the parable of the talents, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him, and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I've always wondered what gnashing of teeth sounds like. It's kind of disturbing. Uh, but I think there's, there's a lesson in this, because look at this. In the parable of the talents, this servant is given a talent. And this is not like a talent like playing the piano or being a runner. This is a large sum of money. He is given a gift by the master. He didn't earn it. He's given this gift. 
It reminds me of on Christmas morning, and I don't know if you've ever had this experience, of, and I'm sure it wouldn't have been your children, but being at Christmas morning and the child comes and opens all the presents and then looks at you and says, is that all? <laughs> it happens. But that's basically what's going on in this parable. And the guy is saying, is that all? That's all you're going to give me? Well, that sucks. So I am not going to do, I'm going to go have a pity party and play my little violin as long as I can about how mean and terrible you are because you didn't give me as much as I wanted. But the problem is we are all that servant. We are all that servant in different parts of our lives where we think, why didn't you do this, God? Why didn't you do that? And we have this attitude of complaining rather than an attitude of gratitude. And this whole idea that Lewis is trying to get at is that when we begin to go down that path, that leads to pessimism and bitterness and the inability to receive the joy and the wonder that God wants to give us. So, right along with that, cynicism and complaining make it impossible to experience joy. And that's joy with a capital J. It looks like loy um, because of the underline, but it's actually joy. Cynicism and complaining make it impossible to experience joy. And again, from the hard-bitten ghost, same old lie. People have been telling me that sort of thing all my life. They told me in the nursery that if I were good, I'd be happy. And they told me at school that Latin would get easier as I went on. After I'd been married a month, some fool was telling me that there were always difficulties at first, but with tact and patience, I'd soon settle down and like it. And all through two wars, what didn't they say about the good time coming if only I'd be a brave boy and go on being shot at? Well, what you see here is someone who is full of pride. It doesn't sound like pride at first. It sounds like he's being self-deprecating. And the problem is all these other people and their bad advice that he's been given all along that ruined his life. But the fact of the matter is, this is just like the Frank Sinatra song, I did it my way. Basically, I'm going to do it my way no matter what. I'm not going to listen to any of you, and you're all wrong, because everything you told me was going to help me make it work out right, you were all wrong. It was all wise, and it's your fault that I am miserable. I don't want to say if the shoe fits, but it is so easy to have this kind of attitude. It is so easy to be cynical and to complain. And one of the things that is so important to understand is that if you are full of cynicism and complaining, it is literally impossible to experience joy. And there's a lot of uh, actual research about this, that cynicism and complaining, and, and we, we have a new 21st century word for this that's more acceptable rather than complaining is venting. Venting. Uh, and that, that's supposed to be therapeutic. It's kind of, we talked about primal scream therapy a couple of weeks ago, uh, sort of like that, that if you just talk about all the terrible things that have happened, that it's going to make you feel better because you got it out of your system. But what the research says is the more you talk about it, the worse you feel. And also the person that's listening to it, they might have started off up here very happy, clappy. By the time they get through listening to you, they're right down in the dumps with you. And so it is a scheme of Satan that is designed to rob people of their joy. And it is one of those things that's insidious. And one of the worst things about it is that Christians fall prey to this. And of all people in the world who should have joy that overflows in abundance, it should be Christians. Christians should be like in Philippians, where it says, do everything without arguing or complaining. Ooh, everything. 
everything without arguing or complaining so that you may shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation as you hold out the word of life. Now, of course, the problem is that the reverse of that is also true, that if you do everything with arguing and complaining, you will not shine like a star. No one will be interested in the word of life that you are purporting to hold out because they don't want to be miserable. Um, but you will see this is the human condition. Uh, and you go right back to the story of the Exodus. And I love, if you've never watched the veggie tale about the Exodus, please watch it sometime. It's so great. But this is not the veggie tale. This is the actual scripture. Then they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone so we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, there's one little thing they're sort of missing here, that they were in slavery. But sure, yeah, oh, it was so much better to be in slavery. But they're complaining because they don't like what's going on. And then this great verse from Proverbs, a wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. And there is a whole sermon that can be preached on that. But think about who are the people in your life that when you are around them, after you've been with them, you feel encouraged and emboldened and ready to go out and face the world and you feel loved and you experience joy. And then think about the people in your life that when you're with them, you wanna go home and have a drink after. And the problem is we, most of us are both those people depending on what moment it is. But what we're called to do in the scriptures is to be people whose minds are set on things above where Christ is so that we can experience that joy and share it. And then from James, um, James, all this part about the tongue is a great thing to read because it's very relevant in our culture today. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And then, this is the disease of our culture. Believing that the purpose of life is to be entertained leads only to despair. Now, the thing that's so really sad about that is that if there's a survey that's done of entering college freshmen every year, and one of the things that I always ask is, what is your goal in life? And uh, the number one answer right now is to have a good time. And then you wonder why people are in despair. Because if, you're, if you think the purpose of your life is to be entertained and to have a good time, it doesn't work out that way, which leads to despair. And it's amazing that Lewis saw this even back in the 1940s. And listen to what the ghost says. It's up to the management, them, to find something that doesn't bore us, isn't it? It's their job. Why should we do it for them? I.e., we are owed entertainment. We are owed a good time. Somebody needs to make sure we're happy and not bored all the time. And then he goes on to say, it's never a new management. You'll always find the same old ring. I know all about dear kind mummy coming up to your bedroom and getting all she wants to know out of you. But you always found she and father were the same firm, really. Didn't we find that both sides in all the wars were run by the same armament firms? Or the same firm which is behind the Jews and the Vatican and the dictators of the democracies and all the rest of it. All this stuff up here is run by the same people as the town. They're just laughing at us. And this is an idea of false superiority, of thinking you know better than anybody else and you know what you deserve and you're not getting it and so you have the right to be angry and bitter. The book of Ecclesiastes is another great place to go on this. I said in my heart, come now, 
I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? And then from Jesus' parable of the seed. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked. It's a strong word. Choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And then St. Paul, for many of whom I've often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. That is all too close to where our culture is today. And it's a reminder that uh, we do not, as Christians, believe that the purpose of life is to be entertained. Um, that the purpose of life is instead actually the great commandment to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And then, blaming others for everything results in bitter inertia. And I want to just say blaming others has a long pedigree, because if you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the fall and God coming and saying, why did you eat this fruit? Adam's response, the woman you gave me, she made me eat it, i.e., not only is it the woman's fault, it's God's fault, because she came from him. And then when God says to the woman, what is this that you have done? Oh, the serpent, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. And so it's just like, nobody is saying, I did it. I'm responsible, I understand I was the one who was wrong, I'm sorry, please forgive me. That is not it. And that's not what's happening here either. So this guy believes that everything that has gone wrong in his life is someone else's fault. There seems to be some idea that if one stays here, this is Lewis, if one stays here, one would get, well, solider, grow acclimatized. I know all about that, said the ghost, same old lie. Don't you see if the official version were true, these chaps up here would attack and sweep the town out of existence. They've got the strength. If they wanted to rescue us, they could do it. But obviously, the last thing they want is to end their so-called war. The whole game depends on keeping it going. And all through this chapter, everything this man complains about is the fault of them. It's uh, very convenient um, to have them as a scapegoat for every failure that he's had in his life. So from Romans, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And then from Acts, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And just think about how many people we see around us who are in the gall of bitterness. They are trapped in this bitterness. They are stuck, they are in slavery to iniquity and wrong ways of thinking. And then Job, I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. And this is just like the guy with the one talent given this beautiful gift of life and saying all I want to do is express my bitterness about what has happened. And then Psalm 73, this is a great psalm because it resolves in a good way. All in vain I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. But the great thing in that psalm is he then repents, and it is a beautiful thing. So are you thoroughly depressed now? Uh, the point of this chapter is Lewis is trying to show us how awful that we can make a hell out of our own life. That by the choices we make, the attitudes that we have, the way that we think about things, the words that come out of our mouths, we can make a hell not only for ourselves, 
but one that impacts other people. And that's why Lewis in the book is so clear about pointing out how depressed he is after having this encounter with this ghost. So it is a good reminder uh, that we need to be very, very careful to not let these kinds of things characterize who we are. Advent is a season of preparation and expectation and anticipation and self-examination. So it would might be possibly a good exercise for you to keep a little mental tally during the course of each day of how often you complain. That can be a good metric. Uh, let's just say, keep the metric and see if that's true. The time, you can change that. But if you're not aware, it's very difficult to change. All right, since this is our last class, I don't want to end on that note. So um, we are before, um, but one of the things Lewis was really good at was mimicking other people's writing styles. And um, he could mimic all sorts of different authors, but one of the people that he chose to mimic was Herodotus. Um, I don't know how many of y'all even know who Herodotus is, but he was one of the great scholars. this thing in 1954 that he called a... Um, the lost fragment of Herodotus, that it was supposed to be a manuscript that had been discovered. Where was uh, Lewis living in 1954? England. And so he talks about, if you were to take the word Britain and spell it backwards, you would get Nyaturb. So I'm just going to... And for 50 days they prepare for it in the fashion I shall describe. First of all, Every citizen is obliged to send to each of his friends and relations a square piece of hard paper stamped with a picture, which in their speech is called an Xmas card. The, but the pictures represent birds sitting on branches, or trees with a dark green prickly leaf, or else men in such garments as the Nyaturbians believe that their ancestors wore 200 years ago, riding in coaches such as their ancestors used, or houses with snow on their roofs. And the Nyaturbians are unwilling to say what these pictures have to do with the festival, guarding, as I suppose, some sacred mystery. And because all men must send these cards, the marketplace is filled with the crowd of those buying them, so that there is a great labor and weariness. But having bought as many as they supposed to be sufficient, they return to their houses and find there the like cards which others have sent to them. And when they find cards from any to whom they have also sent cards, they throw them away and give thanks to the gods that this labor is at least over for another year. But when they find cards from any to whom they have not sent, then they beat their breasts and wail and utter curses against the sender and having sufficiently lamented their misfortune, they put on their boots again and go out into the fog and rain and buy a card for him also. And let this account suffice about Xmas cards. They also send gifts to one another, suffering the same things about the gifts as about the cards, or even worse. For every citizen has to guess the value of the gift which every friend will send to him, so that he may send one of equal value, whether he can afford it or not. And they buy as gifts for one another such things as no man ever bought for himself. For the sellers, understanding the custom, put forth all kinds of trumpery, and whatever being useless and ridiculous, sell as an Xmas gift. And though the Nyaturbians profess themselves to lack sufficient necessary things, such as metal, leather, wood, and paper, yet an incredible quantity of these things is wasted every year, being made into the gifts. But during these 50 days, the oldest, poorest, and the most miserable of citizens put on false beards and red robes and walk in the marketplace being disguised, in my opinion, as Kronos. Kronos is the god of time. And the sellers of gifts, no less than the purchasers, become pale and weary because of the crowds and the fog, so that any man who came into a Nyaturbian city at this season would think that some great calamity 
had fallen on Nyaturb. These 50 days of preparation is called in their barbarian speech the Xmas Rush. But when the day of the festival comes, then most of the citizens, being exhausted with the rush, lie in bed till noon. But in the evening, they eat five times as much supper as on other days and crown it of a sacred feast. And in most of the temples, they set out images of a fair woman with a newborn child on her knees and certain animals and shepherds adoring the child. The reason of these images is given in a certain sacred story, which I know but do not repeat. But I myself conversed with a priest in one of these temples and asked him why they kept Christmas on the same day as Xmas, for it appeared to me inconvenient. But the priest replied, it is not lawful, O stranger, for us to change the date of Christmas. But would that Zeus would put into the minds of the Nyaturbians to keep Xmas at some other time, or not to keep it at all. For Xmas and the rush distract the minds of even the few from sacred things. And we indeed are glad that men should make merry at Christmas, but in Xmas there is no merriment left. And when I asked him why they endured the rush, he replied, it is, O stranger, a racket. Using, as I suppose, the words of some oracle and speaking unintelligibly to me, for a racket is an instrument which the barbarians use in a game called tennis. But what Hecadius says, that Exodus and Christmas are the same, is not credible. For the first, the pictures which are stamped on the Xmas cards have nothing to do with the sacred story which the priests tell about Christmas. And secondly, the most part of the Nyaturbians, not believing the religion of few, nevertheless send the gifts and cards and participate in the rush and drink wearing paper caps. But it is not likely that men, even being barbarians, should suffer so many and great things in honor of a god they do not believe in. And now, enough about Nyaturb. So there are a lot of very interesting things in there that Lewis sort of skewers some of our cultural preoccupations um, and our confusion of the cultural feast of Christmas that begins at Halloween with the decorations and Lowe's and Walmart and what actually happens as we worship Christ, the newborn king. So uh, that brings us to the music that we were listening to. And this hymn, um, In the Bleak Midwinter, I want to just um, look at these words. And so if you will uh, read these with me, that would be great. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen. Snow on snow, snow on snow, in the bleak midwinter long ago. Our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed, the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. What can I give him? poor as I am. If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what I can, I give him, give my heart. Now there's several things about this that make it just so appropriate. One of the things about this hymn is that the composer of the music is Gustav Holst who didn't write many hymn tunes, but you will remember Gustav Holst was Lewis's favorite composer. And this idea of the way heaven is talked about in that central stanza is entirely consonant with what Lewis is teaching us in The Great Divorce. And then also this imagery, and of course we know that there probably wasn't snow piling up um, in uh, Bethlehem like there would be in England. But think of the snow and the climate that's described here as a metaphor for the hardness of the hearts of men and the bleakness 
of the world before Jesus' incarnation. And I think that's part of what the poet is getting at. And then this last part uh, of giving our heart, um, obviously, is so very right theologically. But you, I want to give you a homework assignment uh, for Christmas break here. You know, so many teachers say, I'm not giving you homework for Christmas break, but I am giving you homework. But I didn't give you a handout tonight, so you can be thankful for that. Um, but the homework is please watch the movie The Most Reluctant Convert. Um, it is streaming now. Uh, it is the movie about Lewis's conversion. And even if you've seen it before, I want you to watch it again, and I want you to watch for two things in the movie. Because early on in the movie, which is filmed on location in the places where Lewis actually lived, um, one of the things that happens very early on is that Lewis is at a church service at Holy Trinity Church, Headington Quarry, where he went every Sunday. And in the first service, as a young man, he is not a believer. And the service just leaves him cold. And he doesn't go to communion. Um, the service is just empty and barren. But the movie closes with Lewis going to another church service in that same church. And it's on Christmas Eve. And the candles are everywhere. And you can see the greenery and the beauty and warmth of the place. And the choir is singing this carol. And as the choir sings this carol, the adult Lewis, now a Christian, goes to the altar rail. This is the only movie I've ever seen people kneeling at the rail and literally receiving communion as the focal point of the scene. And it is being filmed that way right during this verse of what can I give him, give him my heart. And it is the symbolizing in bread and wine of the incarnation of Christ, the incarnation of what faith means as Christ comes into our hearts and as we are taken up into the Trinity as we become one with Christ, um, both in our relationship with him and through the real presence in the Eucharist. And it is a profoundly beautiful scene. So um, I leave you with that uh, as we finish this 2022 uh, class, and we will come back January 11th for so much more. So let me close this with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the glory and beauty of who you are. And Lord, we confess to you that so often you give us gifts and we are too blind to see them, that we reject what you've given, that we complain and we criticize and we become embittered rather than living in thankfulness for the love that you have poured out on us, unworthy as we are. Lord, we pray that as we walk through the remainder of Advent toward Christmas, that the words of this hymn would be ours and that we would give ourselves anew to you as we ponder the marvel of your love for us expressed in the incarnation. Lord, we thank you for this time and we praise you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.